On the Empire Podcast this week, we talk to the man behind the papier-mâché mask. Yes, it's Frank himself, Michael Fassbender, and we chat with two directors who must have feet like traction engines. It's Mike Brett and Steve Jameson from Excellent Football Doc, Next Goal Wins, plus the usual movie news and nonsense on the Owner Movie Podcast that loudly said the word panic just as Mike Lee walked past just the other day. True story. Hard to tell from his expression whether he heard or cared, quite frankly. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast as ever. The rules of the pod are simple. One pod booth, four people go in, four people come out again. Uh, first up is a man whose insane theories on sequels are notorious. He thinks Naked Gun 2 and a half is better than Naked Gun. He prefers Ghostbusters 2 to Ghostbusters. And he probably thinks Godfather 1 and 2 are passable prequels to Godfather 3. It's Nick Dissemblian. Hello. Chris, don't make me poison, stab, shoot, hang, stretch, disembowel, draw and core to you. The fate that befell Vigo the Carpathian. <laughs> you've been reading about Rasputin wow no 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 next up we have a geek queen a lady whose theories and sequels aren't quite as crackpot although as a fan of dragons her favourite follow up is Reign of Fire 2 in which a dragon becomes a prime minister and hilarity ensues rated 12A for finalists of dragon nudity it's Helen O'Hara <laughs> yeah I, that was a particular favourite of it mine it was a good one next up last but not least is the exuberant young whippersnapper who edits this podcast uh, his favourite sequel is a new upgrade to whatever editing programme he uses to edit this podcast you know the one I don't have to say that by name, but I do have to say his name by name. Ali Plum by name. Hello, Ali Plum. Hello. You've been sending in your questions all week, not rudely and unbidden, but because we asked you to, here are the very, very best. This week, all from the twits. Uh, at Chris Archer 523 asks, in light of recent news, the recent news in this case being Star Wars Episode Seven, what are the best and worst examples of getting the old band back together in film? Mm. Th- this is a hard one for me because my favourite is a getting you know gathering the team back together film is the one where we haven't seen them together before the blues brothers so we come in and basically the blues brothers reunite their band and have mm-hmm. to go around and collect them all from wherever whatever they're doing mm-hmm. but of course we haven't seen you know the saturday night shows or the stage shows or anything else so it's kind of it's it's a, a slightly sneaky answer to the question that's a good answer, though. It's also yeah. the answer to the yeah. question, because they literally say, we're putting the band, the band back, back together. The band back together. Yeah, yeah, this is also true. I wrote a blog on something similar to this uh, a few years ago for the Empire website, which was about the need that some sequels feel to crowbar everyone from the first movie back into the second movie. For example, I don't know why this is springing up ahead right now, but National Treasure Book of Secrets brings back <laughs> Harvey Keitel's character for no good reason whatsoever, apart from the fact that he just happened to be in the first movie. And I don't like, you know, Joe Pesci in Lethal Weapon 3. There's no need for Joe Pesci in Lethal Weapon 3 or 4. Mm. He was great in Lethal Weapon 2. You, you know, it's just when you feel like a character works in one instance, don't make... It doesn't have to work in the next one. I like his speech about the frog, though, which I think is in 4. I don't remember 4 that it much, was, to be honest. It was a really sweet speech about the frog. And actually, so I'm I'm, I'm allowing him, that one. They do that a lot in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yes. They bring back everyone. Apart from the Kraken, who they should bring back. I'd love it if the Kraken just turned up in... In the further sequels, yeah. So, are we talking about literal bands or no? We're talking about the idea of old casts coming back together. Surely, for you, it's Ghostbusters (laughs) two. Yes, but I mean, there wasn't that much time that passed. I think to have a getting back together big event thing. I mean, the trick, you know, the trope where you have at the beginning of the film they gather everyone. Where have you been? Where have you been? You know, the Mighty Ducks. Absolutely, they're shit every time. They just won the previous film. At the very end, they somehow managed to do it through ingenuity and skill, and mm. then they have to get them together again. And what, you're all crap again? Oh, come on. Did we learn nothing? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fast Five, obviously, obviously, 
has to get a mention just because everybody turns up for no reason. <laughs> everybody, everybody they've had a conversation with yes. I mean, in I, the previous four films. No, like, those, those two, uh, those two guys who, who deal with the toilet in Fast Five, they don't come back for Fast Six. I, I think, don't. Yeah, I think that was a big part of the, uh, the, the the fact that movie wasn't as good. I guess the big news that uh, at Chris Archer five two three is referring to is Mrs. Doubtfire two, and we're going to find out <laughs> where Stu has been. Yeah, where Mrs. Doubtfire's left breast has been, where her right (laughs) breast has been. It's going to be fascinating to see what's happened to all those iconic characters. That's an incredibly good point. It is going to be good. Uh, More recently, we've had Anchorman 2, which I didn't think was very well done. Part of me enjoyed the bat fast food restaurant. Chicken of the cave. Uh, Then the Muppets did it, obviously, in a very huge part of the film. Was it a huge part of it? Ocean's 12 and 13 did that. I know you've got a soft spot for Ocean's 12, uh, Chris. Red does the same thing that, that Blues Brothers does in terms of going, hey, here are all these guys but there's kind of an implied oh okay so mm. I kind of can work it out from the the cliches there's um, a lot to be said for an implied backstory I like recruitment movies it sounds wrong yep. in which people are recruited not just like a band getting the band back together again but movies Armageddon. movies like Magnificent Seven and yes Armageddon to an extent uh, movies like Uncommon Fowler which is a, a wonderful slash dreadful Gene Hackman action movie from the 1980s uh, with, directed by Ted Kotcheff just after First Blood and uh, it's 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 awful. Hackman basically assembles a team to go into Vietnam to get his son back. He's like a grizzled old colonel. And uh, the team's like Patrick Swayze and Randall Tex Cobb and Fred Ward. And it's it's great fun, but it's absolute bollocks. Uh, I love that. And uh, um, Avengers did it brilliantly yeah, recently. Avengers did Absolutely it brilliantly. In Star Trek The Motion Picture, everyone's favourite Star Trek movie, there's a sort <laughs> of getting the, maybe not the band, but the trio back together and there's a scene very early on which is stuck in my mind where McCoy is being banded back together and he's wearing the most extraordinary skin tight white trousers <laughs> if you've ever seen the film it will stick in your mind they're just like you are too old for those I know it's the future but that's not acceptable can that's- you see the whole DeForest both what? DeForest and Kelly yes <laughs> what about Bones all of Bones oh my word <laughs> That's extraordinary. The costumes in that movie may be the worst costumes in any major film ever. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They've got these kind of uh, flesh-coloured trousers that go over their shoes. It's just, yeah, it's just it's bad. It's just awful. You can see Spock salute at all times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, are we done? I think so. I think definitely. All right, as ever, you know, we we did this last week. What was the question we did last week about people who played uh, characters played by multiple people in different films and or different franchises and we, and we said that the, you know, as ever these lists aren't exhaustive we're doing them off the top of our heads and we got lots of responses in last week you know people were saying things like Joe Don Baker who plays you know he plays a bad guy in Living Daylights and then pops up as uh, as Wade in the first two Pierce Brosnan Bond movies yeah well, which Bond Maud girl Adams appears, in yeah. Octopussy and uh, The Man with the Golden Gun as well so it's something that Bond does an awful lot uh, and there were a whole bunch of uh, other ones as well people sent in I think the other one was Paul, and I never know how to pronounce his name, even though I've asked him directly, Dano or Dano, who obviously is in twice. And there will be blood. And there will be blood. Uh, And so the story goes because the person they wanted dropped out or they decided not to use him, and they just went, you know who'd be good? The guy we've already got. Yeah, so they just made it a... A, yep. a brother and it was and it was jobs are good um, we've got you know loads uh, Tom Crooms uh, sent in Cheech Marin in Dust Till Dawn he plays multiple roles in that uh, Ian Robertson sent in uh, Pat Roach the great Pat Roach who pops up in Indi- every Indiana Jones movie apart from um, no he popped in all three all three yeah let's keep that one going and someone said uh, did you know that Harrison Ford and River Phoenix played the same character in an Indiana Jones film gosh 
I did not know that. That's incredible news. Uh, <laughs> it's incredible. I, just to reverse the question, and at the risk of you know doing this one to death, but going back to um, the original one here by Chris Archer, 523, mm. there's something to be said about movies. We don't like it when they have to get everyone back, but it is weird when you get half of them back, there's a noticeable absence. So if you look at the cinematic masterclass that is Beverly Hills Cop 3. I was just about to say that. You oh have God. the terrible scene where your favourite judge uh, is explaining his job. You're right. And it's like, oh, I'm the department of ABA123 said. Uh, uh, where's the other guy? Um, he's retired fishing. He's not here. Just shut up. He's a new guy who plays exactly that role in that position. Poor, a bit old. Poor John Ashton. A bit curmudgeonly. And shall we carry on? I asked Judge Reinhold about that. I interviewed him last year about the Beverly Hills Cop TV pilot, which got made and never shown anywhere. And uh, I asked about John Ashton. It sounded like there was some bad blood between him and Eddie Murphy. They might have had a fight in a pub car park with their shirts off. I don't know. Just guessing. At this point, you're embroidering, right? Just to be clear, for our lawyers. Yes. At no point did John Ashton take his shirt off in a pub car park. To our knowledge. We don't know that. We don't know you could have done. Okay. <laughs> the truth is out there. But yeah, just, just to make the point that sometimes when you have that extended sequel and you don't have that guy, it can be odd. Mm. The banana in the tailpipe wasn't in that one. It either. wasn't in that one. <laughs> well, they, too much money. They Cr- did have the person dying so that he can go and do a thing. They brought that back. Yep. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did, uh, did Serge come back in Beverly Hills Cop 3? No, I don't no. believe he did. But George Lucas was there, so great. George, George was Lucas. there. George Lucas was there indeed. All right. Once again, we haven't exhausted that. If you can think of anyone else that we've missed, then please do send in. Next one's from Damien Barrett, at Damien Barrett, sorry. Uh, what character from a TV series would you most like to see get his own movie spin-off? And he suggests Parks and Rec's Little Sebastian. Um, <laughs> Who is a for, tiny for, horse. Yeah, he a, dead, a, a dead tiny horse really? as well. Yeah. Wow. Well, oh, you haven't reached that bit, have you? Spoilers. No, no, yeah. I'm still... Uh, season three, my friend. Uh, okay. All right, I'm still on season two, but okay. All right, what, what would that spin-off consist of? <laughs> I don't know. It'd be dead. a tiny, adorable horse. It's a ghostly horse having ghostly adventures. Sounds like one of uh, kind of film that Phil would watch. Just sort of like <laughs> a, a stuffed inanimate horse. The Turing horse, black and white. Yes. Yeah. The ghostly adventures of the stuffed horse, the Sebastian. <laughs> um, it's a great song, the little Sebastian song. Go, go and listen to it right okay. now. All right, I'm going to look up, do a deep dive into Nick, the you're, you're not a big fan of Parks and Rec, are you? Because um, you have no soul. Well, I uh, began watching season one on Netflix. I watched about six episodes. I didn't find it very funny, but then... Okay, well, I watched all of it then. Um, (laughs) This was a while back, and then I've been told I'm an idiot several times since. No, the first season is bad. I love the show. The first season's not very good. I keep hearing hearing it gets better. I'm going to go back to it once I've done Futurama. It's the uh, Red Dwarf thing. The first season is just shocking. I'm going to watch it at some point. I would say for who I'd like to get their own spin-off, movie-wise, Game of Thrones, I want The Hound and... Aya to have their own spin-off where they just go and do stuff, Mm. have adventures, get into scrapes, fall into wells, steal everyone's food, kill people. That's what I'd like to see. I'd also like to see Brian of Tarth and Pod get their own spin-off in a similar adventuring, wandering around the place, uh, again, falling down wells and murdering people. Uh, I've been thinking about this a little bit because, uh, and I'm going to say it, Supernatural has just had, (laughs) it's just had what's called, and this this was a new phrase on me a few months ago, a backdoor pilot. Helen, my understanding of Supernatural was that it's constantly had a backdoor pilot. <laughs> You're very funny. But it's uh, basically this is where they uh, they sneakily introduce a situation to a regular episode of the show, okay. which they actually hope to spin off in a completely new direction. So not to be confused with a backdoor lover. Indeed by not. By Du Jour, which is a great song. Everybody American TV shows love this. The American Office yes. did this with the uh, the Dwight Schrute farm show. They wanted yeah. to have a essentially... Because Dwight Schrute is a fantastic character within that. They really took the original thing mm. and, 
and did something with it. And I don't blame them for doing it, but the backdoor pilot doesn't work. Well, this didn't, from my money anyway, because what they essentially did was uh, leave all the regular characters off to one side and uh, and introduce this ridiculous, complicated, Vampire Diaries-esque society of uh, different kinds of monsters living in Chicago. Like, So five families ruling Chicago, but each family is a different kind of monster. Right, so you've got, but they're all like rich people living in rich houses and looking like they're straight out of a catalogue shoot. And it was not something I'm rushing to watch. Sounds great. Let's put it it sounds that like way. divergent. But if you did like launch some of the characters from Supernatural on their own show, I genuinely think Cass would, uh, who's a who's an angel, who's slightly, you know, he's almost kind of he looks at the world in a very unusual way. That would be an interesting show to me. Uh, is speaking of people who look at the world in an interesting way, Troy mm. and Abed in the morning. <laughs> Let's make that happen. Oh, poor Troy. He'll be back. That ain't, ain't happening anymore. He's just he's, he's just gone. sailing. He'll be back, Chris. It's, by the way, spoilers for Community Bank, in case you're wondering. But uh, Donald Glover, the actor who plays Troy, uh, famously, I think, left the show. He's only in five episodes of season five. So he's not dead. He's but not he's dead. Gone. He's gone. He's, he could he's be left, back. He's left the show. Um, the backdoor pilot, um, CSI does it an awful lot. Or used to, anyway. Uh, but they're about to do it again. Uh, Patricia Arquette's about to head up a new show, I think, called Cybercrimes. I'm not going to try to show the title of that. I could look it up, but what, what, what fun would that be? Um, but yeah, she's going to appear in a new episode of uh, CSI coming up soon. Um, and then get her own spin-off. But that's a spin-off, TV spin-off. We're talking about movie spin-offs. I'd like to see the baby in the drawer from the British Empire. I thought you were going to say 24. Because, Shout. Uh, because this is, uh, if anyone remembers the British Empire, with completely demented sitcom, more demented than people give her credit for. If you go back and, and reread the synopsis, it's like, what the hell was going on in this show that went out at 7 pm on the BBC One on a weeknight? Carol, Mr. British's secretary, who used to go, yes, Mr. British, um, had a baby, <laughs> didn't let anyone know she had a baby, so kept it in a drawer under <laughs> her desk at the, at the uh, reception of the, of the uh, leisure centre. Now, that's a serial killer waiting to happen, and I want to see that. I want to see that stalking and picking off the old members of the British Empire cast until Gordon comes back and has to fight. So that's where the makers of Twenty Four got. There's a famously a bit with a baby in a drawer. Is it? CTU. Really? Yeah. It's, it's not the higher point of the, the show. <laughs> it's just above the cougar. We just did a, a feature on the website, sort of summarising everything that happened over the last eight seasons of, of Twenty Four. For those who might have forgotten or who might not have seen all the seasons, it's prior very hard to, to keep track. Live another day, uh, which is showing obviously now. I, I was reading through it. I, I'll be honest, I gave up after season one. Maybe I maybe saw a couple of episodes of season two. It's mental. It's mm. utterly, utterly mental. That entire show from beginning yep. to end yep. Nick gets is very crazed. Angry if you uh, cast aspersions on 24. Helen is utterly realistic. Yeah. <laughs> he accused me the other day on Twitter of calling 24 trash TV, words which never uh, left my mouth. But now I call a trash TV every day and just see what happens well but, uh, you know it's it's fun it's it's bonkers it's, it's no more bonkers in British Empire it's what, got it's got some very very great moments in it um, what would you like to see right I want to see apart from babies and drawers that sounds great you know we're getting a we're getting better call Saul but I'd love to see a Gus spin-off movie with Giancarlo Esposito about his shadowy past in Chile they don't really go into his background but um Don Eladio yes. spares his life ba- based on his past in Chile. He says, I know who you are. You're not in Chile anymore. So yes. I'd love to see what the hell he did to get his reputation. I'd love to see Mike the Geordie from uh, Michael the Geordie from Alan Partridge. I think 
a lot of it would be a high percentage of it would be him shitting in boxes, uh, <laughs> flinging the odd monkey into the nearest body of water. But Michael Geordie box shitter. Simon Greenall, who plays that character, <laughs> that accent is astonishing. He's so good. But it's so interesting at, at the awards, uh, the Empire Awards, which we had uh, not too long ago. Uh, we had the whole Alan Partridge crew down there, and I walked past Simon Greenall and Listy Montague having a chat and they are nothing like their characters they're you know very kind of I kind of tend to watch reality TV programs these days and I think Greg the Egg the movie yeah I would love to see Greg Wallace get his own movie that'd be amazing just him and John Tarot eating food and going, no Whoa. no, no Tarot it's just Greg on the road no 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 I love Tarot no Tarot on the road on the Tarot is this MasterChef for people who don't yes. watch trash TV the Tarot what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> revenge. What did you just say? Sweet revenge. MasterChef is quality entertainment, well made, with good production values. It is friends. well seasoned and full of flavour. <laughs> Fricasseed onions are fantastic. Would you want to see a kind of crime-based spin-off, you know, them solving crimes using kitchen implements? <laughs> that would be amazing. I've got it. All the TV detectives team up. All of them. All They all team up. They all team up. Uh, like Columbo... Uh, it teams up with Morse Sherlock. it teams up with Sherlock and because there's a murder that's happened and it's like nobody can solve it I and think it needs to be murder by death but with the current TV show yes but Grissom Mark Ruffalo in. plays Columbo Mark Ruffalo because Peter Falk because Peter is, Falk sadly yeah. is no longer with us absolutely so Mark Ruffalo that's a good show so would you have Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch Ooh. turning up on the set yes. and then going oh yes, I'm Sherlock no yes. I'm Sherlock oh that'd be great that'd and then well, they could wrestle and we know that there's a third brother in Sherlock. Yes. And we also know that Johnny Miller's character has a brother, and I don't believe he's been introduced. So twins, it works. both called Sherlock. This is all coming together. We don't have time for it anyway. Let's absolutely do that. Grissom comes in and like potters around with the the crime scene. Then Will Graham and Hodge from the BAU come in and like they do some investigative Somebody stuff. Somebody has as well. to take off his sunglasses. Right. Uh, now we've answered that question to the best of our abilities. James, uh, sorry to interrupt. James Dyer wanted me to uh, chip in with a, a prepared statement. He wants to see. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he wants to see Toby from the West Wing stroking his beard and being misanthropic. Uh, oh, amen. I think I think Daryl from uh, The Walking Dead. Need to send movie as well. Yes, he does. That's all I have to say. He, he can yes, stroke he uh, Toby's beard. If actually, they... he, no, he does need his own movie. I actually saw at Comic Con a lot of people wearing T-shirts which said, "If they kill yeah. Daryl, we riot." Yeah. So I feel like the fan base is ready. Yeah, honestly, because he's one of the, he's one of the few characters who doesn't exist in the comic books, and he's become such a fan favorite. And like everyone in The Walking Dead is vulnerable at some point. You just think I don't think if he they is. kill him in my head. He's always invulnerable. When he has a scene, that's part of the reason why I like it. Yeah. Because he gives you a break, you go. Well, he's going to survive because he's the boss. Yeah, I and he has know. an unlimited number of arrows. He certainly does. I don't know. That question's been. That's the that's the most answered the question's ever been. This new one from at underscore culture mouse who asks, with the release this week of The Wind Rises, the last film from uh, Miyazaki. What are your favourite Miyazaki moments and characters? Now, I should announce at this point that uh, the minute Dan Jolin hears the words Miyazaki, he appears as if by magic just appears which is really weird if you're in the bath or, or having a poo anyway why are you saying Miyazaki either in the bath or having a poo why wouldn't you good good point carry on and uh, magically Dan Jolin has appeared hello Dan hello Chris <laughs> how are you I'm fine thank That's you great, I'm fine Dan. I just it was really odd I kind of had this strange twitching feeling in my head and I just felt compelled compelled to come up here did you get the cat bus up don't spoil my answer <laughs> All right, Dan, you popped in for, for um, 45 seconds. What's your favourite Miyazaki moment and your favourite Miyazaki character? Because you're a Miyazaki expert, aren't you? Well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Oh, I've nice. met him. I've been to Studio Ghibli. 
okay, and everything. So yeah. it's you know it's kind of cool. Is he a nice man? Uh, he's a very very nice man. As a matter of fact, because we had to interview through translator, he he didn't mind the fact that the interview went on three times as long as it should have, which is cool. Yeah, okay. But uh, yeah. but yeah, so so yeah, the ultimate Miyazaki mm. moment. I would also say I'd say this is my favourite ever moment in animation. I think this is a masterclass of animation, and that's the moment in My Neighbor Totoro where the two girls are waiting for the bus in the rain, sharing an umbrella, and then uh, uh, Totoro turns up next to them, and they give him an umbrella, and uh, he's he's overjoyed. He loves it. But the, the the way I mean, just just it's mostly silent, so it's complete visual storytelling. And the way the water and the rain is animated is absolutely beautiful, and it's such a tender, over overjoyous. That's not a word, but I've just said it. Overjoyous <laughs> moment. Uh, and then and uh, there's a little toad crawling across the road. These little details, I love them. And then uh, and then of course the cat bus arrives, and it's it's this kind of explosion of amazing surreality. Just like you arriving in the middle of this podcast with no. <laughs> Yes. No introduction. That's right. Uh, okay, and your favourite Miyazaki character? My favourite Miyazaki character. I'm very fond of No Face in a Spirited Away. Okay. Complex character. I thought you'd give a hat tip to uh, our favourite Flying Pig movie. Oh, Porco. Por- oh, yeah, Porco. Porco. <laughs> Bit of Porco. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one, Porco Rosso, because it's kind of it's his most adult film until The Wind Rises. Anyway, uh, but it's um, about flying pigs. It is about literally about a flying pig. Which word can we say to get rid of Dan? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, Michael Bay. I don't know. <laughs> How about these words? Uh, Thank you, Dan. No, now go away. <laughs> that was great. Now, the Dan awesome. Jolin, everybody. Was well done, Dan. Well done. Can we answer this too? Yes, of course we can. Absolutely. But I felt Dan, you know, sure. having been to Studio Ghibli, as we have, Nick. We have. We have been there. We've been to the Ghibli Museum. Um, Nick is a massive uh, Miyazaki fan. I, uh, to my eternal shame, have only seen one film. Oh, uh, And that Chris. was Princess Mononoke. Oh, Chris. Uh, I wasn't that fussed. And, oh, uh, but I went to the Ghibli Museum with Nick anyway. Yep. Nick was in, in, in raptures. He was in heaven. I just looked at all the cute things and thought it was very nice. It's surprisingly difficult to get in. You have to. It was, yeah. You have to kind of order your tickets way in advance, and you have to go to a shop to, and this shop in Tokyo, where they have a kind of vending machine type thing that's completely in Japanese. There's no English at all, so we found it quite difficult to get our tickets out, even having bought them. Um, but when you get there, it's amazing. It's like this huge castle, and they have a scru- huge screening room where you can watch yeah. uh, a short film. In Japanese, because one of the great things about going to Japan is that they don't make any concessions whatsoever for uh, English-speaking people. And so you're just going around this museum that has no signs in English, and the film, the short film they show you has no English subtitles. But it was still amazing. It's an amazing place, and you go up, and on the roof they have an actual huge cat bus that you can get in. And uh, you can also get Ghibli beer. um, (laughs) It's amazing. They have little Totoros on on the label. But you can just have a nice beer. Phenomenal. But uh, you fan, Helen? I'm very much a fan. Yeah. Yes, um, love. I love the weirdness of the films. I love that he's not afraid to s- kind of stop everything and just you know let characters sit for a while. I mean, uh, one of my favourite moments is probably um, Chihiro and No Face just sitting on the train in Spirited Away, and they're just sitting there looking ahead as the train spins along through a flooded landscape, and, and it's the kind of moment that very very few animation studios even even the great american ones they don't really always have the blue sky sure so you know things like and also just the 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 sheer weirdness of it there's always bits in miyazaki movies which you don't quite understand 
but you're, you're kind of just <laughs> okay <laughs> large sex which you don't quite understand but you just get caught up in it and you just go along with it and I mean you know I remember our review of Hoyle's Moving Castle which is an adaptation of, of one of my favourite authors Diana Wynne-Jones there's there's a, a, a sort of an action scene where it's basically two old ladies trying to climb some stairs. That's nearly the closest you've got to an, a sort of an action face-off in that movie, and that's that's weird, but kind of awesome. That was the original premise for Step Up to the Streets. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give a shout-out to my friend Ali McClay, who I shared a flat with some years back, and he is an absolute obsessive. Uh, he loves me. He loves uh, Ghibli films, and that's how I got got into it through him. Um, but they are awesome. And my, my tip is to double bill uh, Spirited Away with Labyrinth, because mm, there's, there's a yep. lot of similarities. Yep. If you watch them back-to-back, it's uh, quite an experience. You'll probably need <laughs> therapy afterwards. Can you see anybody's Vulcan's leg? <laughs> Leggings are not quite as tight and okay. spirited away. Let's put it that way. You a fan, Ali? You got a favourite character, favourite moment? Uh, I feel like we've answered this question enough, and I don't think I've got that much to say because I'm a more of a Totoro person than anything else, and Dan's kind of nailed that one. You, uh, can have, you can say the same thing. That's fine. Well, there's this bit where... I don't want to tell you everything, but there are two characters waiting for a for a bus <laughs> in the rain, and then another character comes along, and then he gets given a number. And there's this little tiny frog. I uh, know, I think it's a toad. Yeah. And I love these little details. Yeah. It's very good. Love that scene. So, um, where where should I start? Spirited away, obviously. Spirited I think away. that's most people's entry point since it came out. Obviously, I mean, uh, you know, Totoro is is a brilliant first film for little kids. Um, mm. I have recommended this to a lot of friends, children and they go nuts for it because it doesn't have much in the way of plot or even dialogue in some parts but it's just so much imagination and colour and crazy beautiful things I like Laputa Castle in the Sky uh, but I don't think it's as essential I haven't seen Kiki's Delivery so that's the one I was going to say could be a really good entry point because it's actually really fun and light Spirited Away is fantastic but it's it's quite an intense Heavier one. Yeah, I think I think it's more of an entry point for adults that one than. Mm. than I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm going to go with uh, my neighbour Totoro. Uh, Totoro (laughs) does have an incredibly catchy theme tune. It's got an it's got an absolutely amazing. But you may want to make the decision whether you want to watch it in Japanese with subtitles or Mm. with the English dub because the English English dub is a bit fierce. Never. They go Totoro. Actually, the English, I will i will correct you on that. Some of the English dubs for Miyazaki films are great. Um, I know because, they've got big names, but... Well, not just that, but John Lasseter uh, oversaw them because um, he's a huge... In fact, virtually all of Pixar are huge Miyazaki fans, but he, him in particular is a massive Miyazaki fan. He was uh, very, very much behind the, the push to get his more recent films into cinemas in the US, and that's why he got these big names. But he also oversaw it and made sure that he got good big names who could do a really good job on the dubs. So the dubs for, I mean, Howl's Moving Castle... Christian Bale does a great Christian job Christian Bale that. is great as Howl. He's re- it's one of his best roles, honestly. But uh, Spirited Away and Mononoke as well, they're all really, really good. Phenomenal, I stand corrected. Nick, you collect Totoro's, don't you? I actually uh, have not got a single Totoro because I gave them all away. No way! Yep, that was stupid. You had them uh, euthanised. I bought tons. I bought so many when I, was in, when I was in... I gave them all to friends. You kept a T-shirt about you, though. I have, Yeah, I wear that regularly. Good, good. The friendship is on. Teetering on the brink there. I have, I have a Miyazaki Club t-shirt I got at Comic-Con. Oh, you do? That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's really good. I like that one. Oh, well done. Okay, 
fantastic love those questions uh, and thank you to Dan for his special guest appearance uh, if you want to have your questions read out on the Empire Podcast that's what this is called right the Empire Podcast I believe so, I believe so yeah. uh, send in your questions we're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine uh, use the hashtag Empire Podcast or chances are we won't see it we're on Facebook as Empire Magazine and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com okay on with the rest of the show it's time for our first interview Next Goal Wins is a wonderful and uplifting documentary that takes us behind the scenes of the world's worst football team no not David Moyes is Man United. <laughs> Football humour. Hey. Solid joke. Uh, but the American Samoa national team as they try to recover from a 31-0 thrashing to Australia. 31-0. So that's a lot, is it? It's a lot. I could, I could do with that score this, this weekend. Oh, uh, I should have converted the tries. They mm, should have done. <laughs> Can you imagine? And anyway, not only did they try and score a goal after that, just score a goal, but they also try and win a game. It's wonderful, it's uplifting, it's moving, and it was directed by two Brits, Mike Brett and Steve Jameson, and they popped in earlier this week to talk to myself and Phil Dissembling. The first voice you're going to hear, apart from mine, is Mike Brett's, followed by Steve Jameson. And obviously, if you don't like football, give it a go anyway, because the, the movie will appeal to people who don't like football, and hopefully so will this interview. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined in the pod booth by uh, Mike Brett and Steve Jameson, directors of Next Goal Wind. Hey guys, welcome. Thank you for having us. Uh, fantastic film. Um, it, it gets football right, which <laughs> so many films don't on the big screen. What, what's, the, what's the secret? Why, why, is it, why is football so difficult to get right? Uh, I, that's a really good question, actually. I mean, I guess, um, I think actually a lot of it is to do with the way that we're kind of conditioned to kind of see film on uh, football and film you know i mm. think you know we're, we're used to kind of multiple camera angles and kind of a high octane a- aspect of the game and, and and i think clearly in this film high octane is not a phrase i would use to describe the american <laughs> Simone football team when we first went to see them certainly and and uh, i think for us um having come from a more of a commercial background um it was very much about trying to actually strip back all those layers that have been kind of almost added into the game in, in the UK and in other kind of very um, developed football nations and actually just go back to the kind of jumpers for goalposts kind of ideology that we all had when we kind of grew up and were playing in the park. Mm. I, I feel this film should be required viewing for anyone £300,000 a week <laughs> who maybe has lost touch with what the game really means and, what, and the emotions the game can stir in you. It's just it's it's phenomenal, but in a, in a way you knew about the uh, the the struggles of of the uh, Samoan team when you went down there. But in a way, was this film also a bit of a happy accident for you? It was a massively happy accident, like you said. We we <clears throat> we knew a little bit about the history of the team, but we had no idea about the journey that they would go on. And and really, it was a a bit of a voyage for Mike and I to rediscover our love for the game. And and as you say, you know, you say it should be required viewing for anybody who's on three hundred thousand pounds a week or you know, maybe no names. Steve, you? That was just a random figure. On that, yeah. That was just a random figure. Plugged yeah. in my head. Can we lower the threshold to fifty quid a week? Yeah. 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 Oh, that includes me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, a, a massive happy accident. We went there to to rediscover our passion for the game, and I think we did that. And that they went on the journey in the meantime was was pure fortune for you to um, when you're making a documentary I suppose you, you, you hope that you've got a decent uh, you know a couple of decent characters t- to follow um, and we went down there because the team story was so good on paper uh, but when you go there and you find Nikki Salapu and you find Jai Sailua and then uh, if that isn't enough for your uprocks Thomas Rongen who, who yesterday mm-hmm. was described as uh, Steve McQueen Lee Marvin uh, he's been described as the drill sergeant from Kubrick's films what else has been described they reckon as? that uh, Willem Dafoe has been uh, uh, suggested Dafoe. as a p- potential remake character you know, when somebody like that walks into the middle of your documentary um, you know you, you know somebody's looking up there smiling yeah. down on you I mean, speaking of Kubrick he's not, he's not just a, a drill sergeant from uh, Full Metal Jack 
fact that he's a monolith from 2001. <laughs> <laughs> he just suddenly rocks up and makes everything happen. It's just, it's. Uh, I think the description of Steve McQueen in a tracksuit was was the best we've had so far, and uh, and, and fully justified. The man, not the Oscar-winning director, but the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was also described as Basil Fawlty yesterday. Which I just think he's <laughs> sublime to the ridiculous. Yeah, he was going to end up in Hollywood all talky, apparently. So <laughs> where is he now? Because I've got a five-a-side team that needs some <laughs> urgent, urgent attention. Uh, we can uh, arrange that for you. It's going to cost you. I mean, you know, he's, the, we, we can get Thomas over here and uh, and he'll drill yeah. any five-a-side team in shape. Although I should say that we entered a team into a five-a-side competition when we were in New York launching the film for Tribeca and we thought that uh, having Nicky Salapu in goal, an international mm. goalkeeper, and uh, mm. Jai Salu in the middle of our back four and Thomas coaching would help us. And uh, we lost every game very, very convincingly. So uh, I, I can't promise that he will. Yeah. In terms of Thomas, he... he- Played for Ajax, he'd sort of come through the ranks at Ajax, and he hadn't quite made it mm-hmm. to the first team. But he's had a very, he's had an illustrious career in the MLS in America. Certainly, um, he coached DC United, and he had a lot of experience there. He entered your film kind of in the middle of things, didn't mm-hmm. he? I, I, it must have been for you, like winning the trust of first of all the players that you weren't just going to come and take the piss, yeah, and then winning him over as well very quickly. I wondered how you sort of how you got him on board with what you were doing. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, in terms of winning the trust of the players themselves, I think uh, the Samoan people are the most hospitable, the most warm-hearted people you'll ever meet. And it was, uh, I think, once we'd actually made the commitment to travel 10,000 miles to be with them, you know, uh, they actually realised that we were serious about making a film. And they also realised that we were serious about making a film for the right reasons. You know, we weren't there to take the piss. We weren't there to to mock them. We were very much there to celebrate their attitude to the game. So that actually was, as you say, a trust-building process that took quite a while. But once we had kind of got uh, uh, embedded in the team and were wandering around in our Samoan lover lovers and our Aloha shirts, as, as we often did. Um, <laughs> and uh, you're still wearing now, which uh, you point absolutely, out Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see under this woolly jumper, but uh, yeah. But, um, but I think then it was a massive shock then that we heard that Thomas was coming along and we were and we were kind of braced for the worst, really, which was we were, we were genuinely concerned that a guy who coached at his level, as you say, he was actually just, uh, just finished up with the US under-20 team in their World Cup qualification campaign. So this guy, he knew the highest level of football. We were just terrified that he would just come in and say what on earth are you doing in the changing room for these you know these team talks what you know why are you coming and eating dinner with us every night because we had kind of full open access to the squad but there were two things I think one was the fact that the administration themselves were incredible uh, Tavita Tamur the CEO who you see in the movie actually said these guys were here first Thomas you know we've kind of given them our words <laughs> that, they, that they're making a film and, and, and they're kind of here that's the deal which was amazing to have their support and I think Thomas actually very quickly as well he's a he's a very savvy guy he understands what motivates people and he, he could see not only that we were very close and we were friends with the team but also that actually the cameras were potentially quite a useful tool to actually motivate them you know that we obviously had belief in them we believed something was going to happen and in in a way he he certainly never alluded to it explicitly you know he certainly never played to the camera but I think he was aware that um, there was a sense of history building a sense of a moment building you know how, how do you go about assembling something like this something so short from from such it's a really good question actually I mean um, uh, I think it's fair to say that we the actual entire shooting period was about six months um, um, in in which we had a bit of a two month break kind of between two trips Um, the editing period was near near enough two years and that was because it was such a long time to hone Um, actually I heard a really good phrase I think it might be from Walter Murch the the very famous editor Mm -hmm. where he actually sort of said that editing is a terrible word to use um, for, for that process because you don't 
don't start with a thousand hours of footage and, and whittle it down. You actually start with a blank timeline and you build from scratch what it is that you want to say. And I think that's a very good description of how we almost started from scratch and and built each scene. We actually tried to structure it like a like a fiction uh, feature film. You know, we we didn't want to just be a fly on the wall kind of obser- observational documentary. We really wanted to build those dramatic scenes in such a way that they they pay off in the most satisfying way, both in terms of the character arcs and of course the teams the team story. We knew we had all these amazing amazing building blocks but as you say you need to sometimes it's like a year and a half into the process you suddenly discover a scene that you realize just has to go into the movie Mm. and equally uh, in contrast there's sometimes an amazing scene that you actually realize a year into the process has to be cold for the for the overall benefit of the movie and that was some of the hardest moments we're actually cutting cutting out those those incredibly inspirational uh, uh, scenes in the movie which which we just knew weren't actually contributing to the overall structure as they should be there any other kind of touchstones documentaries sporting documentaries i was wondering if you guys grew up with uh, the graham taylor the famous graham taylor <laughs> do i not it, like that do i not like that exactly <laughs> which just shows kind of how a documentary can get into the water in a way because that's everyone the only thing anyone remembers about graham taylor is him standing on the touchline shouting do i not like that <laughs> <laughs> did you did, did you have any other do you, are there any other documentaries that you felt kind of had done a good job because one of the things that's fantastic about your film is it really captures football like Chris was saying earlier in a way that feature films where you can get the camera onto the pitch and you can do all sorts of funny things with, yeah, the, yeah. with the camera yeah. angles like the night guard at the moment just uh, throws mm-hmm. me completely <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly I think when he, Mike and I have got quite a lot of experience of filming football and we, we have worked in the commercial arena as well and, and we have one general rule each which is that the, the camera should never make it on the pitch it's, just, <laughs> it's, the, it's the strangest th- choice that you would ever make to take the camera on the pitch um, if, if you want to you know make it feel real and authentic um, in terms of references yeah I mean we're, we're, we're massive soccer fans and we're massive film fans so you know we're massive sport fans in general so we have seen a lot of sports related um, films I, I guess from speaking personally when we knew that we were making this or once we started editing we tried not to not to watch too many mm. of those films because it becomes you know that kind of classic underdog story is is uh, not an original one and, and it would be very easy to try and ape what people have done before and we knew that we had something really really original so we try not to borrow too much from them you didn't go slow-mo yeah. escape <laughs> to victory yeah. style yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were just waiting for Stallone to rock yeah, up exactly. we did call Stallone <laughs> yeah. uh, nah, you know there's there's loads of movies in the past that I think have done a really good job of this N- nothing nothing in, in the football world obviously the Graham Taylor one was amazing because it was access all areas and actually rather than glorifying something you see a man sort of reach the, the edge of madness and I think Larry, <laughs> Larry Larry goes through a similar process in the first half of our film where he desperately tries to tries everything he can to motivate the team and, and he was coaching the girls team at the same time which you don't see in the film and and that was a, a it was a, a nervous a, breakdown a, of, over the course of five half-time team talks. It's, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was terrible to watch. It was it was so painful to watch. And you desperately wanted to try and help him, and, and and there's nothing you can do. So, but in terms of references, I can't I can't think of anything that we really wanted to borrow from. I'm going to um, throw out I'm going to throw out Senna because I was going to say because although it's a very different kind of film, um, y- you know it it it's not about motor racing. You know, it's a, it's a human story, and I think that was always what we set out to do. Is that you know it's funny because it's it, it's brilliant that this film was actually appealed right across uh, the spectrum you know we you know it's it, i don't think we'll ever again make a film that appeals as strongly to loaders as it does to gay times and i think that is you know something we're, re- <laughs> we're, we're, we're really proud of um that it is a universal story and and bizarrely some of this the audiences that you would think would least respond to it have responded incredibly well and 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 and, and sorry like fifa for instance <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no this is, and it's extraordinary actually and and, and it's 
it's a very difficult one because we're, we're delighted, obviously, that, that, that the FIFA love this film and feel that it embodies the values of the game. I think that, you know, we, we strongly believe that's the case as well. And I think that actually the fact that, you know, we screened at Wembley the other night for the FA as well, this, this can only mm. be good for, for the game and for uh, tolerance and diversity in the game in terms of obviously Jaya's character, Fafafine, a way of the woman. She's the first uh, transgender player ever to play an international match. And I think that for us, this is a, a very small little movie and the fact that it's being picked up and actually could potentially have an effect on on the way that that our national game is perceived is a really exciting thing. You touched on your commercial background. Mm -hmm. I I know you guys have worked with Wayne Rooney, Mm -hmm. (laughs) unrelated to any comments earlier about (laughs) salary, etc. I just wondered, I mean... It was just a figure. In your your dealings with professional footballers, is there a sense that, I mean, this is the kind of film that they get beaten over the head with Mm -hmm. a bit, isn't it? It's like, it's a fairy tale, but you people should... You know, be more grateful and more gracious in the way you act. Are they? Do you sense that they're kind of aware of of that perception a little bit? And and what sort of? I mean, you mentioned showing it to the FA. What kind of responses have surprised you from people involved in the game over here? It's funny. You're right. We have worked with a lot of, of top pros. And we've worked with people like Wayne Rooney, and 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 um, sometimes those have been difficult difficult experiences. I wouldn't say because of him. I would just say because of the industry that is that is built around him. Actually, he's a player where, where and, and he receives an awful lot of criticism about you know the level of the wages that he's on. But but we've met the guy and we've kicked a ball around with him. And he's he's somebody who I personally feel that if you took those wages away, if you took the industry of football away, he'd still be down the park on a Saturday kicking a ball. He absolutely. He yeah. loves the game, and and yes, there are pros that you get to work with where that isn't always the case, and you can, and and you know there have been pe- you know pros in the past who I suppose have behaved badly and 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 taken those wages in the industry for granted, and and yes, this film is for those should be shown to those people, but I wouldn't say that he was one of them, and and a lot of the pros are desperately in love with the game, um, and so you know f- for us it's um, we've been fortunate to work with those guys and and. They have a they have a certain love for the game, and I wouldn't you know I wouldn't you know I wouldn't want this to be beaten over the head with. No. Do you know what it was? It was interesting because uh, Graham Lasso actually presented the film at Wembley the other night, and 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 he he was incredible because uh, you know he actually came down and 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 watched the entire film. You know he wasn't there just for the just for the fanfare, and he said afterwards, you know, thank you to Jai and Thomas in particular for for reminding us of why we love this game. And I, and I think Steve is right that we all went in for, into it for the right reasons. We all love the game, uh, at, at, you know, from from yay high to a grasshopper. But actually, I think that kind of love can kind of slowly dissipate, and you don't realise where it's gone until people like this remind you of it. And I think, in that sense, I think actually all these people in institutions, um, all these players who've seen the film, the Socceroos have seen the film, incidentally, well, yeah, and loved it. Um, <laughs> Tim Cahill yeah, came down it, yeah. to uh, Tim. It was actually amusing. Uh, Tim Cahill, the uh, top, top scoring soccer of all time, I believe he'd bagged thirty one to get that record, which is somewhat ironic because he came down to meet Nicky Salapu at the uh, the New York Premier, who had picked the ball out of his net thirty one times against Australia. <laughs> Uh, back in 2001 and and it was amazing to see these two guys embrace who just have this pure pure love of the game in common regardless of one of them is a millionaire and one of them is a guy putting up mobile phone masks for AT&T in Seattle and I, and I love that I actually screened the film for the Socceroos in a, in a hotel last year when they were about to play Brazil and get a hiding similar to the one that they delivered uh, to the American Samoan <laughs> team and it was amazing to see somebody like Mark Schwartz who's the, who's the Chelsea goalkeeper so he's playing right at the top of the game 
um, you know, in the last minutes of the of the film, sort of jumping to his feet and punching the air and exclaiming "Jaya!" You know, <laughs> she makes a goal line clearance. So you think, you know, we all connecting on the on on the same level in these things, and it was that was an amazing thing to see. Fantastic. Well, guys, as I said before, whether you're you're a footballer who's fallen in love with the game, or or someone whose uh, football team have just blown the title by drawing three three with Crystal Palace, <laughs> this film will restore of? your joy uh, and your and your love of the game. So it's it's fantastic having you again, uh, Mike, Steve. Pleasure. Thank Thanks you so, so much. much. Thanks, Cheers. Bye bye. Time now for some movie news. Do we have any? Anything happen in Hollywood this week? I've got a couple of smallish stories. Okay, dogs, we got. I'd like to share. Uh, first of all, uh, we all know that there's a Point Break remake coming. We do know. Yeah, my petition hasn't helped. I know. Um, you, what you were petitioning for it to happen, or no, to not happen. Okay, good. Good. Just checking. Well, Jared Butler was lined up to play Bodie, who is, of course, the part brought iconically to life by Patrick Swayze in the original. He was, but has now left because it appears that the schedule is going to clash with uh, the London Has Fallen sequel Olympi- uh, to, uh, you know, to Olympus Has Talk Fallen. Talk about a rock and a hard place. Right. So he's just going to have to not. Uh, so the question now becomes, who will they get in instead? Uh, we put up a, an entirely speculative poll on the website. 52% of people say there shouldn't be one uh, because there is only one Bodie and he's Patrick Swayze. Um, uh, Lewis Collins is a pretty good one as well, I have to say. Lewis Collins. In The Professionals. Bodie and Doyle. Okay. Okay. That, that was a... Anyway. <laughs> uh, 19% say Matthew McConaughey because too few people saw Surfer Dude yeah Nick's nodding to that one alright 17% Keanu on the basis that stars often swap roles for the remake 9% Cameron Diaz she surfs a lot I think the world's ready for a gender swap okay and 3% and I think this was Chris Sean Pertwee fans I, of Blue Juice I've, I've, nothing, got, I've got a good one nothing to yeah. do with it uh, I saw a YouTube video of an otter on a surfboard Okay. That would be... You know what? That would improve this film. I'm sold. An otter on a surfboard. Yep. If that Brody. was the poster, I swear I would go see that okay. at least twice. So I, they need you know Benedict Cumberbatch then. Oh. Yes. So Benedict. anyway, it's coming. It's director Ericsson Kaur. Uh, the other star is Luke Bracey as the Johnny Utah role. Amazing. Uh, is it amazing? I don't know. But can can we imagine being Jerry Butler and honestly having to choose between London Has Fallen and Point Break. You, do you choose what's certain to be the greatest movie ever made? Yeah. Or do you go for Point Break? I don't know. It's a tricky one. Chris, let's play a game of fuck off. <laughs> you go first. Always, my friend. Always. Uh, what do you got? I want you to work out what story I'm talking about from the phrases I'm about to say. I like games. This is okay, good. you ready? Oh, he's good at this. May the power be with you. Mm. Let's rock it. Have a nice flight. See you next fall. This one's going to give it away. <sighs> it's morphin time. Oh. These are all catchphrases from the insanely popular and bizarrely still on TV Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, which is now being turned into a cinematic experience that will rival both Citizen Kane and all the X-Men's combined. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie is coming. <sighs> Didn't we get that last summer with Pacific Rim? Oh, <laughs> hey. Oh, snap. Other classic phrases, are, of course, go Green Ranger, go. And... Um, Power Rangers. <laughs> okay. We may not have our powers, but we are still Power Rangers. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, surely you're just Rangers at that point. Well, yeah. Rangers after they got demoted to the third division, they, they lost a bit of their power. Wow, really. so much football humor. I know. I don't know if we're the core audience for this movie. Although <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're all dressed in different colors today. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I don't. I don't know who is watching this. I think a lot, a lot of children all over the world, sure. uh, famously or at least amongst. 
us. Brian Cranston voiced quite a few voices in the English dub um, way back when. So do do go to YouTube. We'll go on YouTube and type uh, in, Brian type in Snizzard. Oh, yes, Cranston, and you will see him uh, saying very menacing things about his Zapparapple. We won't tell you how to spell Snizzard because that would ruin the fun. Now, as I remember this, um, it, back in the day, the pink ranger was the only girl and the yellow ranger was, I think, Asian-American. And the the black ranger, I'm not kidding, was African-American. And I'm wondering... Why, um, why would that be? I'm wondering if maybe, you know... the. I mean, the, the colour coding may have moved on since, but but please tell me it's moved on since. There are no details other than the fact that they're making the movie and Haim Saban, who own the, the property, are doing it with Lionsgate. They're, I mean, no one's been cast. I mean, I hope that they just get four people in suits and then they just get famous people to voice them because that would make me so happy, especially if it was slightly delayed. Would it? Because, let's be honest, none of us are going to see this film. I'm going to see the film. You're going to see this film? Yeah. Really? I would be honoured to review this film. <laughs> If Brian Cranston came back, so good. A splinter. And he You're making back... so many people unhappy by saying that. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I just want to see a zapper apple. I think we all do. I think we almost saw it in the first episode of Breaking Bad when he. Um, <laughs> anyway. Tastefully framed. Uh, yes, Helen, you got another one, haven't you? I have a, I have a quick one, yes. Um, Emma Thompson, recent Empire Award winner, mm-hmm. um, has been cast in a role in A Walk in the Woods. Now, this is extremely exciting for me because the book is one of the funniest things I've ever read. Um, it's by Bill Bryson, who writes kind of travel books, uh, occasionally science books and things like that as well. But basically, he is one of the funniest men on earth. And this book actually made me cry with laughter. And if they can if they can translate even a fraction of that onto the screen, it will be very funny. Robert Redford is making it or is in, in, in producing it. Um, he's he's actually giving Ken Quapis the the chance to direct. Um, but he's been trying to make it ever since he was pl- he was planning to do it as a reunion with Paul Newman. So it's been around for quite a few years uh, since before Paul Newman's sad death. Um, he's now planning on teaming up with Nick Nolte as the twosome who try and walk the Appalachian Trail um, at the heart of the story. They're obviously kind of fictionalising the book, which was a non-fiction account of Bryson's attempts to do the same. I would guess Emma Thompson might be somebody's wife, I guess. I don't know. Also to cast are Nick Offerman, Always good news, Kristen Schaal um, as well, and of course Emma Thompson. So I am ex- officially even more hyped than I already was to see this. Yes, I, I'm glad this kind of film is getting mentioned on the podcast um, because we should go watch this. This sounds it sounds great. All all the things are coming together well. Nick Offerman should be somewhere in a wood crafting, saying wise things. Yeah. Sam Elliott should crop up for no real reason. Sam Elliott with that moustache in the woods. Oh. Anyway, if you haven't read the book, also go read the book. I genuinely cannot recommend it enough. If you are an aficionado of terrible puns, you may be familiar with uh, the Steven Spielrock-produced uh, The Flintstones movie from 1994. Now, that wasn't very good. The sequel was even worse. But it is getting a Yabba Dabba reboot with <laughs> a Flintstones movie. It is going to be an animated movie, and the folks involved are Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, which I think bodes well, although I could imagine... Will Ferrell doing it live action. I think uh, John C. Riley's a better Fred Finstone. I think having, throwing it out there, having him as the voice would be great. There's a yeah. Wreck It Ralphie quality to Fred. Mm. Yeah, who will play the uh, dinosaur that provides the sink destruction garbage disposal service? Godzilla. Yes, great <laughs> shout. Questions about the animation style. I don't want to see 3D animated. Fred and Wilma. Mm, you're right. I thought in my head I just presumed it'd be too two D. Yeah, if yeah. It, and if it's two D, how do you sort of fill the screen? It's an in, interesting I one. I think this is probably because of Peabody and Sherman, perhaps. 
Now it's time for a second interview. Um, he doesn't need much of an intro, does Michael Fassbender. He's emerged over the last few years to become one of the most charismatic and magnetic leading men around, but he's also a fantastic actor, as evidenced in the likes of Hunger, Shame, 12 Years a Slave, X-Men First Class, The Counselor, and you know what? Even Prometheus. His movie star face is tucked away for the most part in Frank, but when Helen and I went along to speak to him recently, we were relieved to see he'd taken off the mask and was in good form talking about all manner of things, including the likeable song. What's the likeable song, Helen? Yes, we should explain that. Uh, basically, at one point in the film, uh, his character Frank uh, tries to go populist and comes up with a song which has lyrics about Coca-Cola and McDonald's and everything that people like. Uh, so just bear that in mind when he starts uh, explaining exactly what that involved. Here you go. Enjoy. Uh, we're delighted to be joined in our portable pod booth by Michael Fassbender, star of Frank. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you? Very good. Excellent, excellent. Now, um, first question is not about the mask. It's not about the music. I was taken by your shriek. At one point in Frank, you shriek. Now, did you know that, that you had that shriek inside you? And where did that come from? That's my inner raccoon. Um, uh, yeah I just wanted to sort of you know have something very kind of I don't know primal or you know something that's like I I guess something it reminded me when where we grew up there was there was stoats and rabbits and when uh, a stoat would like catch the rabbit they usually sort of bite him around the head or the neck area and there would just be a really high pitched sort of shriek that they would make and I just thought something very sort of feral or, um, yeah, like a real, you know, a cornered animal type sort yeah. of thing would, would be the right sound there. That's amazing because it, it, it surprised me. It was like, you know. Surprised me too. Yeah. Did you know you had it inside you? <laughs> Seriously? I mean, uh, you know, I imagine the mask does help in that way because it, it, it shields you. The one thing that the mask was difficult with actually just, and that's just reminded me, was sound because it's so echoey in there. So hearing the the you know what the sound was not for the shriek but just for sort of you know accent delivery at times was kind of strange because it was so echoey in there but yeah that 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 sort of shriek thing once it happened i was like yeah that's the sound that i i wanted you know did you have any kind of models for the voice for frank's voice because it sounded i don't know it it sounded weirdly johnny depp to me at times in one of the slightly weirder roles well oh right well i'm happy because i I thought you meant the sort of singing i haven't heard johnny (laughs) depp sing but uh yeah, a lot of people said sort of Jim Morrison. I was just sort of yep. no, I I did look at Iggy Pop, and so it was a kind of um, Michigan uh, sort of accent, even though his house is in Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> um, Who's counting? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a minor detail. That doesn't mean anything. Just a few hundred uh, miles. Uh, uh, exactly. It's just a couple of states. Um, so uh, that was an influence. And then, you know, Daniel Johnston, some footage that I sort of had that I was watching of him and especially some of it when he was sort of in distress, that, that they were kind of the main ones. And in terms of the, the script, I spoke to Lenny uh, Abrahamson whenever he was uh, filming the movie. He was uh, when the first picture of you with the, the mask came out and he was uh, talking about how you got hold of the script. He said they didn't send it to you. It just kind of worked its way into your hands somehow. So how did oh, yeah. it come about for you? That would have been my agent then, Connor. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, because he he gave it to me, so he was like, "Take a look at this," mm. you know, and uh, that yeah, that was it. So, so were you looking for something because you've been doing a lot of big movies recently? Yeah. Were you looking for something specifically smaller to do to a sort of a moose bouche, if you will, in between big projects? Not really. I mean, it just it's really what sort of lands on the desk, and yeah. I don't actively really seek things out. It's just uh, what's a good story or not. And then I just, you know, when I started reading that, I was like, whoa, this is, 
really weird and uh, and unusual and original and and funny and and I found it you know moving also so it was it was just it was a pretty simple choice really and mm. then I you know I was uh, I was a big fan of Lenny's work so it was a, a very easy decision and that's just kind of the way it goes it's whatever comes up at the time what lands in the desk and uh, and whether it's good and then who the director is what about the sort of mechanics of it like did you have a stunt head and a you know everyday head and things like that like I'm thinking there was different heads yeah. yeah I think just you know different heads would sort of for <laughs> for different jobs um <laughs> it's like uh, some sort of toolbox isn't it uh, uh, adjustable heads um it was uh yeah we had a couple of different ones and then there's different uh, elements of distress that happened to the helmet so mm. you, you know switch switch them up there's the helmet I mean there's the head then with the with the makeup on it I imagine there were uh, you know difficulties with peripheral vision you said you talked about hearing for example but could you see anything from that thing or not it- not a great deal yeah. no I guess it would be kind of like pushing your hands together and just looking through a little gap in your fingers mm. Uh, and it's sort of out each each sort of periphery. Couldn't right. see anything in, uh, directly in front of me. Oh my god! It was actually it was kind of it, it, I suppose freaked me out a little bit at the beginning, but uh, after a while I just found it kind of fun. And uh, and yeah, I like a, whatever you know, putting on the the head made me feel quite mischievous, and so you know let others worry about me banging into stuff rather than. <laughs> me and uh and you know there's also you know again there's a kind of liberation that comes with the with wearing a mask yeah so it was fun uh so compare and contrast your experiences wearing that mask with uh on days of future past magneto's helmet because you only got to don it for a little bit in uh, first class is similar hearing problems or peripheral vision problems or is that okay it's important with the Magneto helmet that I've got good vision yeah. <laughs> because enemies are about uh, 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 and uh, <laughs> we could strike it any second absolutely <laughs> I've got to be uh, I've got to be ready for him at any moment and hearing wasn't I don't think a problem with the with the the new helmet that I had maybe in the old helmet but the the new one is sort of it's an interlocking piece so mm. Um, it wasn't that bad but I can always use it as an excuse if I don't like something that somebody's saying to me I'm like I can't hear anything, <laughs> can't, can't hear anything. helmet <laughs> you didn't find yourself on set of, of Frank as well um, you know telling people what facial expression you had at the time as, as he does in the film you know yeah. happy face happy face yeah, yeah. I just didn't have any change in my face though that was the thing <laughs> I was kind of just bored no <laughs> no no uh, no uh, um, yeah, no, I had much more fun not telling people, I suppose. <laughs> There's a great picture that Carla took. Uh, I'm sitting and Donald's sort of sitting across the table and I'm just sort of uh, giving Carla the finger as she sort of takes a picture. And it's a cool black and white photo, actually. I've got it at home. It's uh, it's pretty rock and roll, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Sounds amazing. You, 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 uh, it's right, go ahead. Well, you're not, temp- you're not tempted then to actually go, go on tour with the band? Yes. <laughs> that would have been great. Unfortunately, it's trying to get everybody together. Mm. At the one time, uh, but yeah, we had a lot of fun work, you know, playing together as a band, and we we were lucky in the way that we got to rehearse three or four weeks before we started filming, and so that was cool. We got to kind of, you know, um, gel together, uh, and it was uh, that helped a lot. Were you uh, ad libbing the lyrics, or was it all off the page? Not really. Maybe here and there, in little bits, but um, Lenny had written such great accompaniments to, to Stephen's music. Stephen Rennix mm. did such a great job with the music, and, and so, you know, I didn't want, you know, what they had written was so good, unless something came, and, you know, because we did try to keep things fluid and, 
and organic as well. So sometimes things would come and you sort of throw it in there. But that was in general throughout the piece, you know. So uh, Castano was saying that he had a... He's actually got some sort of songwriting credits now from the film, for the stuff at the beginning of the movie where he's just kind of... Uh, yes, you know, I saw that. Yeah. I saw that in the credits last night. I was like, yeah. shit. <laughs> Damn. So you say to what's like, uh, what about me? <laughs> <laughs> so you sit through the credits now. Is that, what you, is that what you do? Just in case. Sit through the credits? You sit through the credits of, of movies. Is that something you normally do? No, because they were doing the Q&A last night. Oh, okay. so, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just thought maybe you were watching it in case Spider-Man turned up at the end or something. Okay, <laughs> uh, you just seemed like really excited there because that's something you do. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's something that happens You're like more another more. one. Yeah, another You're one, like... finally, you can join my club. <laughs> There's only a few of us left in the movie theater at the end. There's a newsletter comes out four times a year, so yeah, look out for that. It'll be fun. Um, I was going to ask about the likable song, but I think you've kind of already answered it. That that was a, a piece of, I thought, songwriting genius. Yes. With, you know, everything yeah. people like. Yeah. Brilliant. Unfortunately, not none of my doing. I just <laughs> delivered it in a very scary way. <laughs> it could be like the hit novelty single of the year if you released it. I think that would, that would be huge. Yeah, I think, you know, we should release an album. I think you should release an album. I think it's going to happen. We asked Donald to pronounce the name of the band. Can you also pronounce the name of the band? Soren Frups. Yeah, I feel like we've got two different versions. I like that's, not a, that's not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> I like that version. That's good. That's yeah, not too bad. Thanks. Um, but you shot, you shot the bulk of the movie in Ireland. We did, yeah. Uh, um, Wicklow and Albuquerque in New Mexico. I was going to say Albuquerque's not in Ireland. Is it? No, my, there's that little village outside of uh, <laughs> Abidorney. It's called... Uh, <laughs> Albuquerque. Albuquerque. <laughs> um, we find, Helen and I find, we go back, when we go back home, our accents become almost exponentially thicker. Okay. Uh, in fact, we're getting thicker now just talking to you. Yeah. What about yourself? When you go home... Do Mine turns the opposite. No, no. Uh, yeah, I suppose that happens to everybody, doesn't it? When you go back, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that that's that's common. Do you find any problems in terms of keeping up a, a different accent when you're doing that? Keeping up appearances, yes, every day. Uh, um, um, no, I, I don't really sort of stay in in accent. I kind of go in and out. Uh, so you also have a film. I think it's coming up or announced anyway. The Trespass Against Us with. Gleason Senior. Are that's you right. working your way through? I'm the working family? through the family. Yeah. That sounds weird. <laughs> <It> does, <laughs> it sounds like that sounds like a uh, Terrence Stamp movie. Uh, <laughs> what is that Italian movie where he works his way through the family? The Italian movie. There's the, 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 the Limey. Is that when you think? No, of? No, 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 no. Much well, earlier than that. Much is it a Bertolucci film? Or? Oh, no, yeah. no, it's not. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You guys talk. I'll go. Well, check, check, check that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll do it. Anyway, um, going mind. through the family, the Gleason <laughs> family. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward. To working with Brendan. It was a dream working with Donald and uh, I've been a big fan of Brendan's for for many years now so so that's really exciting. That's cool. And we were looking through your upcoming projects and you have I think uh, when we counted about 11 million of them so mm-hmm. um, some some quite busy times coming up. So what is actually next on your on your agenda at the moment? Uh, trespass. I've got to go home now and do some homework. <laughs> yeah no that, that that'll be coming up I think beginning of June. Okay, so you basically launch X-Men and then on to that. Yeah. And that is going to be, I imagine, one of the, you know, judging by the reaction at Comic-Con last year, judging by everything we've seen of it so far, one of the biggest movies ever. It's going to be the biggest biggest movie ever Ever. in the universe. (laughs) Amazing. To date. Are you going to Can you believe it? (laughs) It's huge. It's huge. It's made, what, six billion already and it hasn't opened yet? Are you going to sit through the credits on uh, Days of Future Past? Absolutely. (laughs) I've got a little dance number at the end of those credits. 
<laughs> which you'll want to see. Completed Magneto outfit. The post-credit sting. Well, that was almost the, the sting on uh, Prometheus, wasn't it? You dancing as David. Yes, I wondered that. Yeah. 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 On yeah. board, he has like a little disco room with the floor that lights up, you know. Those, those special disco floors well, that we don't too. see enough of. <laughs> we don't see enough of those in, in hard sci-fi. Yeah, exactly. We just don't. We just don't. Sci-fi but and disco, they're meant to come together. And they did for one brief, beautiful moment in Buck Rogers. <laughs> we never got to see David. Yes. But we might, we might be, might be going uh, to see him again because obviously Fox have announced Prometheus 2. Yes. And they've said there'll be multiple Davids. Oh, they have, yeah. have they? Now, are you, you aware know of this? more than me? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, are you aware of this? Have I told you that there's going to be multiple fast benders knocking around, or is it? Uh... Uh, I heard um, rumors <laughs> adrift. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but, but I'm not sure where those rumors came from. Whether it was from Fox or or from us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he made it up. Yeah. Is Assassin's Creed then still on the table? That's the other one that I know our readers are very excited about. That is definitely on the table. Very excited about that. Yes, very excited. I've lost the... Uh, I, can't, I can't find the Terrence Stamp movie. Oh, no. I've let you down. Man, how's that possible? I've got no 3G coverage here. No way. I can't... I can't... Uh, I can't... I'm sorry. Oh. Well, next time. If we find it, we'll let you know. Okay. We'll let you know. That's a, that's a bad note in which to end, Michael, because I've, I've let you down. <laughs> you have let me down. I've let you down. But uh, Terrence Stamp says probably Superman 2. 3G let us both down. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I'm looking at you, EE. Oh, Michael Fassbender, it's been a Thanks pleasure. A lot. Thank, Thank you so cheers. much. Okay, so let's talk movie reviews now, and let's start with Mr. Frank. Um, very frank review of Frank. What do we think of this one? This is from Lenny Abrahamson, who uh, last directed What Richard Did, the movie that launched Jack Rayner to stardom and the uh, Michael Bay's radar for Transformers 4. Mm. What do we make of this one? This is an interesting and a, and a weird movie. If you're going along because you think Michael Fassbender is extraordinarily handsome and, you know, fair, uh, you're going to be disappointed because he really does keep on the mask. He commits to that mask and uh, you're not going to see a lot of his... Uh, his movie star good looks. However, mm. uh, that kind of is the point, really. So Donald Gleason plays our kind of our point of view character, if you like. He's a, a young man called John who we meet trying to come up with uh, his own songs and, let's be honest, failing disastrously to come up with anything uh, hummable. He then uh, he, he gets called upon to, to join this rather experimental rock group who, as you heard, uh, has an unpronounceable name and uh, and tries to I guess become part of the team. He's really inspired by uh, by Fassbender's Frank. He's really you know fired up by him. He wants to be just like him. He wants to take Frank to the next level and and help this group achieve all that they can achieve, um, at whatever cost comes along. And uh, and Gleason is right. His character is simultaneously the sort of the protagonist, but also kind of the villain in some ways because he just doesn't get it. He's ex- extraordinarily naive. And just just disastrous to be around uh, mm. in many ways. Um, so you know the the, the group is going to um, the the group therefore is going to go through quite a lot of turbulence, let's say, on its road to well, what looks like stardom. And is it, it it strikes me because I've edited both the interviews now as a very dry film. It sounds funny, but is it a little too cool for school? It it is uh, mm. it is very cool. It is. Um, it is both funny and and often tragic and often really uncomfortable funny. Uh, this is not sort of you know 
hysterical gross out lols this is this is really kind of situational humor a lot of the humor for example comes from maggie gyllenhaal you know continually threatening to punch donald glayson's character and frankly he he really really needs punched um so you're kind of with her on that um so yeah it is very good uh but it is not going to be for everybody and it's not exactly an easy film to yeah to sum up in a lot of ways it's it's quite dry and it's quite austere in, in the way it's shot and it's quite matter of fact so it's not very glossy and brightly coloured and uh, but I thought I, I loved this movie mm. I really did I thought it was fantastic it um, sounds like a cult classic not bestseller to yeah. paraphrase I would the absolutely say that's the case absolutely. Yeah. I mean there are some laugh out loud, loud moments uh, Frank in the shower is is hilarious mm. the likeable song the likeable song is brilliant me. yeah <laughs> absolutely destroyed me uh, and I think the performances are great you know Fassbender is, is wonderful under the mask uh, great body language Maggie Gyllenhaal's beautifully unhinged uh, but I think the film belongs to Donald Gleeson it really does with you. I think he's, he's great I, 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 yeah it's weird maybe I maybe I am, uh, identify with him a little bit more than perhaps you might have done but I, I didn't see him as much as a villain of the piece it's just a, a, a decent guy trying to do the right thing um, but you know I can, I can absolutely see how you might he's, see he's that. awful see that I, I didn't get that I honestly didn't oh. get that I, th- I thought he was just trying to help this band do well. Yes. Uh, in the process, destroying the band. But that's neither <laughs> here nor there. Um, it's it's very, very funny. And the music is good. The music is great. Uh, the score is fantastic. Uh, and the songs within the, the, the film are, are brilliant as well. And uh, Fassbender's, yeah, got a decent voice. Even if it is muffled by a mask. Uh, we gave it four stars. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's that's it's a fantastic film so go do go and check it out if you if you can uh let's move on now to um sabotage this is going to be very very quick because i think i'm the only person in the room who has seen it uh it's the latest salvo in arnold schwarzenegger's uh, big swing come come back this time he plays the shady leader of a shady <laughs> shadier dea team of hard asses who are picked off one by one by an unseen menace after they steal 10 million dollars of mexican mob money the the uh, other members of the team are played by character actors like Terence Howard and Sam Worthington and Morel Enos and uh, Joe Manginello and uh, Max Martini people like that so it's really really tough guys uh, it was co-written and directed by David Ayer whose End of Watch I absolutely loved it was one of my top 10 films of the year uh, when it came out uh, I was desperately hoping this would continue the streak and be uh, Arnold's first properly good film since his comeback uh, sadly I was disappointed we gave it two stars I think this is borderline one myself I think it's almost unwatchable um, wow yeah it's um, very very poor uh, it's trying to be Predator in the sense of it has this this group of larger than life personalities being picked off one by one by Nancy Menace but the, the, the plot itself makes no sense when you play it back 10 million dollars doesn't seem like a very large amount it's not either. a large amount of money to kill for and the and whenever the, the, the killer is revealed their motivation is sketchy at best uh, the performances aren't great essentially you get there's no there's no uh, clear delineation of personalities in in Arnie's troupe. It's one person with six six different haircuts. That's essentially what's happening. I have to say, this is one thing that's put me off the film. Really distressing facial hair. Um, yeah. I mean, really, mm. really handsome team members, and then just just awful, awful mm. things happening in their foliage. Yeah, Sam Worthington does not look like Sam Worthington for me at all. But I like the idea of Arnie as a as an anti-hero, like as a like really as a bit of a bastard. Yeah, I uh, doesn't really work. I haven't seen this film yet. I kind of feel like I have because I have seen the track listing for the soundtrack, which basically <laughs> is a list of the characters' deaths in order um, for some reason. Um, but I was on set in Atlanta, and I'm really kind of disappointed to hear what what you said about it after you saw it because I've, I came back from that 
thinking this was going to be fantastic. They were all talking a great game, and I thought that it would be another end of watch, but with Arnie. So it's yeah. sad that it's not. It re- really spiralled on the blood hole in the US, didn't it? It did. It did, sadly. And, you know, I'll say sadly, it's not a great film. Yeah, it's such a shame for me because I loved End of Watch and I think David Ayer is a really interesting talent. I'm very, very excited to see what he does with Brad Pitt and a huge tank in Fury, which will come out later on this year. Mm-hmm. I just thought his gritty aesthetic might have worked in in this world and, and Arnie might have worked and it might have been the first proper great Arnold ensemble film since Predator, which is, you know, 27 years old now, that film. Wow, that's kind of weird and aged me a lot. But uh, it, it just doesn't deliver. It doesn't deliver on any level. The, the the mystery isn't intriguing. The performances are overwrought. The action isn't good when it happens. The plot is nonsensical. I think a lot of the blame could be laid at the script, uh, which when I say co-written by Ayer, he, uh, he overhauled the script by Skip Woods, the hack extraordinaire who... Uh, uh, is behind the likes of uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. It's not good. Uh, when I say Borderline 1, I'm trying to think of redeeming features. Olivia Williams is okay as a uh, police uh, officer who investigates it, but the murders, I mean, the idea is that you're setting up these guys as the best of the best, and the idea is you're trying to set up this entity that's, or whatever it is, or a killer that's picking them off one by one, and the deaths are meant to be gruesome, but basically they're all just drunken idiots. None of them are likeable, not even Arnold. It's a it's a massive shame because uh, you know I just think he hasn't he hasn't really delivered since he came back. Last stand I enjoyed for the last half hour was over the top. Uh, Escape plan was was leaden and inert, and this is just plain bad. He was the best thing in it. Though. He was the best thing in it. He was great, and actually I think one of his best performances in, in years and years and years. But this is just not good, guys. Uh, two stars for that, but uh, by all by, by no means is that even close to a recommendation. Very quickly, we also have The Wind Rises, of course, which is the final film from Studio Ghibli's Head Giblet. Hi, um, Hayao Miyazaki. Hayao. Hayao. Hayao Miyazaki. Hayao Miyazaki. I'm really good. At, I'm usually good at Japanese. Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, what are their thoughts on this one? Um, well, this is uh, lovely, as you'd expect from a, a, a Miyazaki film. It's it's beautifully put together. Um, it's it's kind of a very loose highly fictionalised, let's be honest, uh, biography of the aerial engineer, I guess, aeronautics engineer, I should say, Jiro Hirokoshi, um, who was the guy who basically developed the Japanese Zero Fighter, which was a hugely, hugely um, successful uh, plane during World War II for the Japanese. Um, it, it was a beautiful piece of engineering. It's, it's the equivalent of their Spitfire, basically. It was it was massively important uh, during the Second World War. But what this portrays is a guy who was hugely idealistic, who just dreamed of flight, who dreamed of flying, who loved the air and wanted to create a sort of a perfect machine that would fly in it. And unfortunately, then, you know, guns get attached to it, which is you know, outside of his kind of purview. Um, it, that whole thing makes it a little bit difficult for Western audiences from, from one point of view in that, you know, obviously yeah. the Zeros were a, a machine of war for a, a terrible regime. But on the, on the other hand, if you can sort of divorce yourself from that kind of politics and history of it, it, it this kind of fictionalised account of, of this man who just dreams of flying is something that you see in Miyazaki films over and over again. Yeah. There's sequences in Howl's Moving Castle that could almost fit right into this to this movie um, because it's just that dream of flight and that dream of being kind of unrestrained by by human limitations. It's, yeah, it's very much a film about the imagination and it's very biographical as well as the flying. It alternates between reality and these incredible dream sequences where you just see amazing stuff going on. Uh, up in the air, and it's a really, uh, it's a really moving film. It's definitely one of his more serious films. Mm. 
And there's um, a love story as well, we should say, between uh, Jiro and his wife and yep. the sort of the, their their relationship over time and, and the illness that she suffers and how he kind of suffers alongside her, I guess. Yeah, and there's definitely an element of him feeling guilty about the, the things that he's... between creating these incredible machines and then the guilt that he feels as they go on to be used in war. And uh, there's some kind of nightmarish sequences as well as dream sequences, but it's a really, really interesting, complex film. I liked it very much. Yeah. And some of the some of the best skies you will ever see. I was blown away by the skies. Absolutely. It, we don't really want him to retire, is what we're saying. <laughs> How old is he now? I mean, like, he's about the 80 mark. Okay, so he's probably... He's got many years left in him, <laughs> okay. it's fine. Um, we gave us four stars, yeah? Yes. Four stars for uh, The Wind Rises. Uh, and there's a massively lengthy review of it on the Empire website. Do not uh, double bill this one with Labyrinth. Okay. <laughs> that wouldn't be a good idea. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, four stars for the Wind Rises. Uh, and very, very quickly, I will mention Next Goal Wins. We had uh, Mike Brett and Steve Jameson in on the podcast earlier on. Uh, it's a fantastic documentary. Uh, possibly uh, one of the best of this year. Obviously, we're only still in May, but it's very, very good. And even if you don't like football, it's a wonderful, joyous, uplifting tale of losers trying to overcome their loserness. And uh, I think uh, I, I think it, it will make people fall back in love with the beautiful game if they if they have fallen out of love, love with it recently, it's a sort for whatever of, reason. It's a sort of true underdog story, isn't it? It is. It's yeah. very much a true underdog story. And, and we give it four stars. I give it four stars, but by extension. So Do you agree we. with that review, Chris? Uh, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I do. I do. Uh, and that is it for this week's Emperor Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Josh Hartnett, star of the new Sky TV show Penny Dreadful, in which lots of horror icons team up together and uh, you know try and do things. And we'll also have Gareth Edwards, the director of Godzilla, who will be stomping our pod booth flat unless we ask him nicely not to. Until then, it's goodbye from Nick. Uh, may I quote Vigo the Carpathian once more? You, you might as well. Death is but a door, time is but a window. I'll be back. <laughs> Vigo or is that Arnold? What? Is that- this was Vigo's last words <laughs> okay. before he died and then came back again. Oh, wow. Like Moving. <laughs> Moving words. Uh, it's goodbye from Helen. Do you want to quote Vigo? Uh, I-, I wasn't planning to. Okay. Could but- you quote Vigo? If- <laughs> no, probably Vigo not. Vigo Do the bit about the castle Vigo of skulls. <laughs> yeah. I'll get you, Ghostbusters. There may come a day when the courage of men fails, but this is not that day, something along those lines. And it's goodbye from Ali. I'm going to leave you with my favourite, my favourite Mighty Morphin Power Rangers quote. <laughs> and it is genuinely, I actually like this one. This is a phrase they use. More phenomenal. <laughs> Let's all leave it there, shall we? More phenomenal. Wow. Take that home with you and see if you can crowbar it into the conversation with your mum when you call her up and it goes on a bit too long and she tells you about the new crockery she bought. Just say, that sounds more phenomenal. Wow. See what she says. That's amazing. That is huge. You know, I think we should probably sign off with quotes more often. That's quite, I, I quite like that. I think we've accidentally stumbled upon something here. And it's goodbye for me. I'm off to immerse myself in the world of Miyazaki, a nice uh, double bill of my neighbour Porco Rosso and um, Grave of the Ghiblis with the dog bus. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Bye. Bye.